Good morning. Welcome. Uh, my name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC. And uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet, I just want to say hi and uh, thank you for being with us this morning. We are continuing our series this morning in the book of Daniel. Uh, we've been looking at the book of Daniel for a couple of weeks. And uh, Daniel, I think, is just such a great um, passage of God's word for the moment that we are living in. Um, as a culture now in the United States and, and you know, the Western world probably. Uh, the book of Daniel is the story about um, what does it look like to live faithfully in light of God's presence when things aren't going your way. And uh, we've seen a couple over the past couple of weeks, the book of Daniel is the story of a foreign dictator, a pagan king conquers God's people and takes the best and the brightest of God's people, 700 miles away into exile in Babylon. And uh, there they are given an education, and there they are sort of indoctrinated, and, and, um, and King Nebuchadnezzar really attempts to woo God's people into assimilating, into leaving their cultural and, um, and religious distinctiveness and, uh, and giving themselves to the culture that surrounds them. And so we've, uh, we've seen how the story's played out. We've seen um, that it's actually been God's will, uh, that, that God's people aren't conquered despite um, God's best efforts, but it's actually God's will to discipline his children. Um, that uh, like a father disciplines his children, that God disciplines those who love him. And we've seen what it looks like to be faithful in the midst of persecution and suffering. And this morning, we continue the story in the book of Daniel, looking at Daniel chapter 4. And so if you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to turn uh, with me to Daniel 4. And I'm not going to read the whole chapter. Uh, it's kind of long. But in, in Daniel 4, you can find that on page 741, by the way, if you're looking um, and following along with me on one of, in one of the blue Bibles. In Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar, the cruel pagan dictator of Babylon. He has a dream. And God has arranged it so that Daniel, the prophet Daniel, has risen um, through the ranks and serves in the court of the king. And, and Nebuchadnezzar has his dream that troubles him. And so he brings Daniel, he calls Daniel to come and interpret the dream for him. And we are going to start reading in... Um, Daniel 4, verse 19. So would you stand with me as we read God's word together? The first part of the chapter just tells the story of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, but it's rehashed as Daniel interprets it. So we're going to start reading in verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to the heavens, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, 
a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from that time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence, and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand. Or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Will you pray with me? God, these are incredible and terrifying words to read. And Lord, would you help us to see that you are the Most High, that nothing happens apart from your will, And would the words of Nebuchadnezzar, who humbled himself before you, uh, be sweet words to us this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. 
pride. Who, who is the proudest person that you know? Who is the person who you would say that person would never humble themselves? He or she would never um, admit weakness, admit wrongdoing. He or she would never humble uh, themselves before God. Uh, you might think of um, a professional athlete, right? Uh, I can remember as a kid my dad saying to me, you know, when you score, act like you've done it before, right? And it would appear that um, there aren't too many professional athletes who took that advice from their fathers. Um, maybe it's a politician. I mean, I, I had to say it this week, right? Maybe, maybe it's the person that you're going to vote for the day after tomorrow. Or maybe it's the person you're going to vote against the day after tomorrow. Um, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> maybe it's the person sitting next to you. You would not believe, my friend. You wouldn't believe the way my spouse talks. You wouldn't believe the things my roommate does. Um, they are so full of themselves. You know, the funny thing about pride is this, that we are really good at recognizing pride in other people. And we are really bad at recognizing pride in ourselves. What if, the, um, what if the most prideful person that we can think of is actually the one doing the thinking, right? What if it's actually you? What if I am the, the most prideful person that I know? Well, no matter who you think uh, is the most prideful person, who, no matter who you think might be the most prideful person, there is one person who really takes the cake. And that is Nebuchadnezzar. Um, think of some of the things that we've seen him do in the book of Daniel. Uh, he, he con he's just a ruthless, ruthless dictator. He conquers God's people and is, you know, any, all nations, actually, as we'll talk about in a minute. Um, he, he, he takes the captives, the exiles, and he, he takes them um, you know, hundreds of miles away from their home. He takes young men primarily, elite noble men from the cultures that he's captured, and he takes them away from their families, away from their homes, away from their land, and he indoctrinates them in the culture of Babylon. Uh, I mean, what kind of arrogance would you have to have to, um, to deal with people like that? Um, I mean, what's the most recent thing we've seen? In chapter 3, he builds a statue I don't know if I said this last week. He built a 90-foot tall statue. And it's of what? It's a statue of himself. And he, I mean, can you imagine? Uh, some of us don't like to see pictures of ourselves. He built a statue 90 feet tall of himself. And he commands that everybody does what? That they bow down and worship. Um, the arrogance of, of this man is striking. And yet what we see, well, what we see in Nebuchadnezzar is that he had dedicated his entire life to expanding his kingdom and his reign and his rule and his influence as far as he possibly could. And at the end of Daniel 4, what we see is that he humbles himself. And he says he is glad to do it. Uh, do you know who wrote Daniel chapter 4? Uh, you might have noticed at the end, if I had read the beginning of the chapter, it's a little bit more clear. Nebuchadnezzar writes the story of Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation. It's written in the first person. And he says at the beginning of Daniel 4, he says, I want to send this to the ends of the earth so that all people will know what God has done to me. He says, um, you know, it's like going to see the doctor. <laughs> it hurt, but it was good for me. 
he's happy to tell us about his own humiliation. Why would this prideful, proud man, this ruthless dictator, um, why would he tell us of his own humiliation? What happened to Nebuchadnezzar? Well, um, let me ask you this. What would have to happen in your own life? What would have to happen in your own life to be humbled like, like Nebuchadnezzar was humbled? What would have to happen in your life for you to humble yourself, to bow the knee before the Most High God? Last week we talked about suffering and how does God use sort of the circumstances in our lives um, piling up against us? Uh, how, is God, how can we remain faithful to God when everything and everyone is going against us? And uh, that's a hard message. It's a good message. But you know what? We see in Daniel 4, I think is maybe even more terrifying. Because the question Daniel 4 asks is not, what do you do? How can you remain faithful when everybody is against you? What Daniel 4, what we see is, um, what does it look like to remain faithful to God when you're on top of the world? When everything is going your way, what does that look like? Um, you know, we've all heard stories of people who um, who experienced God meeting them in suffering. Uh, have many of us heard the stories of God meeting us when we were winning, when we succeeded at everything? What's even what's even more scary and difficult than everything being stacked against us is is that what what does it look like to be faithful to God when everything is going our way? So there's two things that I want you to see. In Daniel 4, and the first is the insanity of pride. The insanity of pride. The first thing that we have to see is the insanity of pride. That pride blinds us, and that pride uh, dehumanizes us. That in our pride, that we are blind to the way that we really look, and that it it actually debases and devalues us. Um, Isn't it insane to think that the world revolves around me? Of course, now, of course, nobody really thinks that, right? Um, but wouldn't it be insane to think that when I'm driving, all the other drivers on the road ought to bend their driving around the way I want to drive, right? And yet that's exactly how I drive. <laughs> um, wouldn't it be insane to think that I'm so important that other people should shift their priorities and their schedules to accommodate my will? But if anybody could actually think like that, the person who could think like that was Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had accomplished more than, I don't know, maybe there's four or five other people who have walked the earth that could say they, um, they were as successful as Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Nebuchadnezzar is one of maybe five or seven people in world history who could say that they conquered the world, and mean it literally. Um, that at the time that Nebuchadnezzar ruled Babylon, Babylon, through Nebuchadnezzar's military genius and leadership, had literally conquered the world. That every nation that Nebuchadnezzar was aware of on the face of the earth, he had either conquered or entered into a treaty with them. And he was the ruler of the world. And having conquered the, uh, the whole world, he turns his attention from being a great military leader to also becoming a great cultural and civic leader as well. And the um, sort of the height of his success is exemplified in the building, uh, his building of the city of Babylon. 
And Babylon, by all accounts, was just the, the you know one of the great, beautiful cities that was ever built. Um, the city of Babylon was laid out on a grid. It was an organized city. It was surrounded by uh, stone walls 20 feet thick um, surrounding the city. I mean, just the strength and security of Babylon. Uh, in the city of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar had not one or not even two, but three palaces where he was uh, free to you know, live in luxury. But the height of his... Um, city is seen in the hanging gardens of Babylon, which were one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And uh, the hanging gardens of Babylon, um, scholars think that they were like uh, skyscrapers for the time. Um, so the, these tall buildings that were just uh, you know, skyscrapers of greenery. And so in the midst of this massive city, you know, a city that would be um, you know, for the time was, was just incredibly huge. Uh, it, it, there were these skyscrapers of greenery throughout the city, so the entire city was like a uh, was like a park, right? It was like driving into Ladera Ranch. It's just a, a wonderful, serene place. And so, if anybody had a right to his pride, it was Nebuchadnezzar. And yet, at the beginning of the chapter, it, it says, "I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid." And as I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. He's saying, I had everything I needed. I was at ease. I had ceased from going to war. I didn't have to worry about anybody conquering me because I had already conquered them. I was prosperous, and yet I couldn't sleep. My, my dreams were troubled. I was restless. Now, there's a, a great litmus test for us, isn't it? If you think you're not proud... Ask yourself, how do you sleep at night? Um, you know, my kids sleep great at night, right? Because they have nothing to worry about. And those of us uh, who are older, you know, we, sleep eludes, right? Sleep eludes the proud. Uh, we often tend to think, I think, that we don't have a problem with pride. And the reason that I think we tend not to think of ourselves as proud people is because no matter how successful any of us is, we know somebody who's a hundred times more successful. Um, no matter how much money you make, you know somebody who could put two or three zeros more at the end of that, don't you? Um, and so it's easy to look at somebody else and be like, wait, sure, I'm whatever, but they're, that's what really rich and affluent <laughs> looks like. Or no matter how successful we have been uh, in business or work. We know somebody who grew their business faster and larger than we did. And so it's easy to look to others and compare ourselves to others and say, well, I'm not proud because, um, in fact, we tend to think the, almost the opposite, don't we? That the problem, the, the reason I'm so anxious is because I'm just not quite there yet. And if I, if I just had a little bit more, um, if I just had a little bit more, then I'd be okay. If I just accomplished a little bit more, a little bit faster, then I wouldn't be so anxious. But though I think we don't want to admit that, I think we all sort of know deep down that it's not true, don't we? I think it's just true that not many of us can handle success. Because those who are truly successful, those who have really made it to the top of the world, like we've heard the stories, we know that they tend not to be happy people. That those who are truly on top of the world oftentimes are miserable. I heard a great story this week. I was listening to a podcast, and uh, 
story of this guy named Gregor, and Gregor uh, thought his whole life that he was almost, he was a musician, and he thought he was almost going to kind of uh, get his break, and he was about to make it big. And um, as he approached his 50s, Gregor realized that this whole time he thought was the upswing in his life. That was actually like the height. <laughs> and um, and Gregor, in his like melancholy, realizing that this is as good as it gets, begins to reminisce about his old friend who he used to hang out with when they were both struggling musicians. And his friend's name was Moby. And um, you... You know, if you're a certain age, you probably are familiar with Moby, the you know, electronica kind of musician. And um, and Gregor begins to obsess about this uh, encounter he had with Moby. They were struggling musicians. They lived in uh, New York City. And one day, Gregor's into this. You know, musicians are really into like very obscure music. And Gregor picks up this uh, this CD that's a collection of of spirituals called the Sounds of the South. And he's just you know these uh, slave spirituals in a lot of cases, and he's uh, he's telling Moby about it, and Moby says, "Oh, can I borrow that CD from you?" And Moby samples that CD, and if you've heard any of Mo- Moby's music, that is uh, what resulted from Moby sampling that CD is the album Play, which went platinum 12 times in 1999. And um, so Gregor is convinced as his uh, like world is is unraveling that he needs to go back and confront Moby because Moby never gave him that CD back. (laughs) And so he takes, for some reason, a podcast producer with him and they fly to LA to go confront Moby. And they sit down in Moby's living room and Gregor's trying to get up the courage to ask for the CDs back. And as he does, Moby begins to tell Gregor about... um, you know, his CD had gone platinum 12 times over, and he says he was staying at a hotel in Barcelona, the penthouse level, and the other people standing on that floor are other, you know, uh, just world-class musicians, and he's in Barcelona because he's going to receive an MTV Music Award the next day. And he said, everybody left my room, and the party was over, and the and all of a sudden, I had this overwhelming urge to kill myself. And he says, I was so frustrated that the windows in the hotel were just those little ones that um, just barely swing out because I was ready to end it all. And he says, um, you know, he's saying, I was on top of the world, and the worst thing for me was realizing that it wasn't enough. And Gregor didn't get his CDs back, (laughs) but he left feeling like, you know, maybe things haven't gone so poorly for me after all. Not many of us can handle success. And here's Nebuchadnezzar, and he is on top of the world, and he is content and comfortable and prosperous, and yet he can't sleep at night. And here's the heart of the issue. In verse 30, Nebuchadnezzar says this, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I have built from my, by my might as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And I think in that he shows us what the... Um, what the definition of pride is. That pride at its heart is saying, I did this and therefore I deserve this. That I did this and therefore I deserve this. See, the um, problem in our lives is that we tend to think we haven't quite arrived yet. And so we think of ourselves as not proud. But pride is saying, 
you know, you don't have to have accomplished everything in order to say, this is what I have accomplished and this is what I therefore am entitled to. Um, another way to say it is pride is claiming as your right something that you were given as a gift. Claiming as your right or your due something that you, were, that you have received as a gift. Now, some of us think, you know, now what do you mean? Because I work hard. Uh, I work hard to take care of myself, to take care of my family. I work hard to not be a burden on anybody else. Uh, and don't I have a right to enjoy, um, you know, the things that I've worked hard for? But what we fail to take into account when we think that way is that the things that we have worked hard for, our, even our ability to work hard was itself a gift. And that none of us chose the time or the place or the family that we were born into, right? And if we hadn't been born in the time and the place and into the family that we were born, we would not have had access to the opportunity and the education that we've received that enabled us to work hard, right? Uh, I mean, if you had been born as a peasant in feudal Europe in the Middle Ages, right? Uh, you would not have received an education, and you would not have gone to college, and you would not have ever uh, made it for yourself, and you would never have had the opportunity to move to South Orange County like all of us lucky people, right? Um, you wouldn't be who you are today if you hadn't received what you were given. And you know, just statistically, the more affluent that we are, the more we tend to think that we deserve the things that we have. Isn't that fascinating? The, the less affluent we are, the more we tend to view life as a gift. And the more affluent we are, the more we tend to view the things that we have as our due, as things that we've worked hard for and therefore we are owed. And so we get increasingly angry and frustrated about what we don't have yet, all the while thinking that if we could just get to this next we're so close to making it, and if we could just get there, then we would finally be happy and satisfied. And we ignore what we all somehow instinctively know, that, that people who have arrived, people who have made it, people who are on top of the world are often not content. And so the question is, do you see how insane that is? Do you see how insane it is to think? I mean, even some of us are listening, like I'm listening in my own head going, yeah, but I'm probably the exception to that, right? I could handle the success. Do you see how insane that is? Pride is nuts. It blinds us to who we really are and what's really going on in our lives and in our hearts. And that's why it makes us less than human. So um, many of us say, or some of us might say, you know, I'm tracking with you. I see what you're saying. But I don't have a problem with pride because I'm a very nice person. And uh, you know what? You might be the kind of person who is... Um, you're so nice and you're so kind and you're so helpful that when anybody else has a, somebody has a problem, you're the first person there to help. But the, the litmus test for pride is not, are you a kind person? Unfortunately, it seems like there's not much relationship between pride and kindness. Um, the litmus test is not, are you kind? The litmus test is, can you receive help? Can you receive, um, see, if you're the first one to help, but you won't receive the help of others. You say, no, I didn't do this, so I don't deserve it, right? Which is, which is the definition of pride. Um, the test of our pride is, are you able to receive? 
do you view your life as a gift? The test of pride is this. Do you recognize the things that you have as a gift? Do you view um, your time? Do you view your money? Do you view your giftedness as something that you have received and that you can therefore uh, be free and open-handed about? Or do you think that they're yours and that you deserve the benefits that they bring? Pride is insane. Okay, so what do we do with our pride? Well, look at what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. God sends him a dream, and he is a tree, and his branches spread over the, uh, the whole earth. He's giving shade and rest to the whole earth. And in this dream, uh, somebody comes and cuts off the branches and cuts the tree down to a stump and leaves just the roots and the stump. And what it's showing is that God is going to humble Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, even Daniel, you can hear Daniel pleads with him and says, King, humble yourself. Maybe still God will relent. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't. And a year later, he's walking on the roof of his palace and he's kind of surveying, oh, isn't this, isn't this Babylon the Great, which I have built to display my glory? And it says, as the words are in his mouth, uh, this voice from heaven comes and says, everything is going to be withdrawn from you, Nebuchadnezzar, and you are going to be like an ox. You are going to eat the grass of the field, and, and this happens, and his hair is matted, and his fingernails grow long, and for, it says seven periods of time, because scholars don't know how to translate the word, and so I, we don't know if it's seven weeks or seven months or seven years, but Nebuchadnezzar savagely loses his mind, and he lives like an animal in the field, and um, he eats grass, and at the end of seven years, um, at the end of seven years, he finally humbles himself. But what I think we see, before we even move to the second part of this, is that God is giving him a gift. Um, and that Nebuchadnezzar's ability to even write about what has happened to him is a gift that he receives uh, from God. And so the question for us is, what would it have to take? What would God have to do in our lives um, to get our attention and to wake us up to the insanity of our own pride? Um, I've seen God send a wake-up sign in people's lives. And, you know, sometimes people... Uh, we receive it, and we humble ourselves, and sometimes God knocks us down and we get up even more hard-hearted than before. Uh, several years ago, I was um, I, I was in this place in our in my job and in our ministry where we were looking to uh, to move on to what God was calling us next, and we were going to go through this assessment process. And part of that was asking people who I know and who have who care about me to kind of give, write a reference for me and offer some feedback on my life and ministry. And, um, you know, this was back when I was still a, a young, proud man. <laughs> and um, and, and I, I started getting this feedback, and there, this, this word arrogant kept coming up. I was very unfamiliar with Why would this? I mean, I don't, I don't know. And I was talking with a friend about this, and, uh, and he said, why do you think people keep using this word arrogance? And I said, I think it's like a personality conflict or something. And he's like, well, have you ever thought about the fact that it might be because you are arrogant? I'm like, no, I have not thought about that. And, and my friend saying to me, um, you have to own that. 
that that's actually who you are. And the first step is um, acknowledging your own pride. And that God cannot heal your pride until you have acknowledged it. What about you? What would it take for God to get your attention and wake you up to your own pride? Well, the second thing I want you to see in this passage is not just the insanity of pride, but the healing of humility. The healing of humility. The incredible thing I think about the book of Daniel is this, that God pursues the heart of this pagan dictator. Uh, You could imagine a, a story where God keeps his people safe in Babylon under the influence of this pagan king. But isn't it just beautiful that God... Uh, a central part of the story is God bringing the pagan king to faith in, the, in himself. Um, that God pursues Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar lifts, lifts up his eyes and he says, I blessed the Most High. And he realizes that there's a kingdom above his own and there is a king that is above himself. And I think it's just such a, um, a beautiful thing that the, the way Nebuchadnezzar refers to God is... Nebuchadnezzar calls God the Most High, right? Because Nebuchadnezzar was the Most High. And in his sanity, as as his sanity responds or returns to him, he says, no, there was somebody else whose kingdom is greater than mine, and he, he is the Most High. How does God rescue the proud? Well, he pursues us by his grace, and he humbles us, and he makes us his own. The Bible says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That if we are proud, God is opposed to us, but he gives grace to those who are humble. And isn't that what we need? Pride is claiming to be the master of the universe, but Jesus, the true master of the universe, doesn't hold on or cling to what he is and has, but he humbles himself. He leaves heaven and he becomes a human being, which is probably a far uh, more shocking transformation than a king becoming an animal. Um, The master of the universe humbles himself. And as Jesus went to the cross, he was beaten, he was ridiculed, and he was humiliated. Now why would Jesus submit to that? Well, he submits to his own humiliation in order to cover our pride. He is humbled in order to cover your pride. If you know that, um, if you know that the God of heaven had to leave his palace in order to come and find you. If you know that um, you have done such a poor job of running your life that God had to come and live it for you, that he had to substitute himself on the cross in order to take the death that you rightly deserved so that he might lift you up and reconcile you back to God, I think that that just might have the effect of humbling you. Don't you? If you won't turn from your, your, from your pride and humble yourself before God, how would you ever um, how would you ever know what it means to live faithfully when you're on top of the world? How could you ever uh, experience what God has given you as a gift without humbling yourself before Him? I have to say this. Um, humbling yourself before God won't turn you into a person who is falsely humble. See, there's a, there's a type of false humility, isn't there? Um, there's a type of false humility that says, 
uh, I hear what you're saying, but I don't have a problem with pride. I don't, I don't think too highly of myself. I don't like myself. Um, I, I hate myself. I wish that I were different than I am. I don't like anything about myself. And I hear you talking about God and his grace and his goodness, and that might be true for other people, but that, that could never be true for me. And do you see that what's happening there is your pride is actually working in reverse against you. And your pride is prosecuting you day and night. Your pride is saying, if pride is saying, I did this, therefore I deserve it, then your pride is working in reverse to say, I didn't do this, and so I don't deserve it. And so the solution is not to, um, to think of yourself, uh, to somehow convince yourself that you have the self-esteem to rise above the way you look at yourself. Um, the, the solution is to recognize that only that God's grace can only be received as a gift. And when you have received that gift, you will be a humble person who can move out into the world in sort of a quiet strength because you don't need everybody to recognize you and applaud you. And when you have received God's grace as a gift, you can move out into the world and love other people, not because of the way they respond to you, but simply for their sake because you don't need their approval, and their affection. See, some of us think that if we humble ourselves, people will walk all over us. And so you've just got to believe in yourself. The humility is not um, letting people walk all over you and not believing in yourself. Humility is, um, let me say it like this, humility doesn't mean that you don't believe in yourself. It means knowing that somebody else believes in you. And isn't that so much better? I mean, what, what, what's better, um, believing in yourself or having a dad who believes in you? This week, um, my soccer team, my coach, we're getting to the playoffs. We're getting ready for, you know, penalty kicks, uh, shootouts can determine the end of a game. And, and so I'm taking these eight- and nine-year-old boys, teaching them how to kick penalty kicks. And there's this kid on our team. It's his first year playing soccer. And, um, and, uh, and he... he um, you know, he takes his penalty kick. He goes, I'm so bad at this. He's like, he, <laughs> he's just punishing himself. He says, I'm so bad at this. I, I hate playing soccer. I, I don't even, I, I'm so incompetent. And I just got down in front of him and said, I believe in you. You know, you're one of the fastest kids on this team. And I've seen you, you, you know, grow in your ability over this year. It's not, it's not me just trying to find something nice to say about this kid. But which one's better, believing in yourself and always be wor- being worried that there's some glaring thing that you have missed that's about to be exposed, or knowing that you have a father who believes in you? Let me finish with this. Um, Vin Scully, one of the most beautiful examples of humility I have seen recently. I feel like for some of your sake I should say something about baseball this week. Um, <laughs> And this is as close as it's going to get, okay? <laughs> uh, for those of you who don't know, Vin Scully was the announcer for the Dodgers, and he retired a couple weeks ago after 67 years. 67 years as the TV and radio announcer for the Dodgers. And um, like I think before his third to last game, Vin Scully, the Dodgers had this big, um, you know, thank you, Vin Scully night. And he comes out to give his retirement speech. And it was just like the most beautiful picture of such a humble, gracious man. 
And he gets up, and the first thing he says is, Welcome to my Thanksgiving. And he proceeds to talk about all of the things that he's thankful for. And he says, um, he thanks the players, he thanks the, the mayor of Los Angeles, he thanks the, uh, the, the Dodgers management, he thanks the commissioner of baseball, he thanks the other announcers and sports writers and the media um, that were his colleagues. But then he says, he says, but most of all, I want to thank you, the fans. And he says, as an eight-year-old boy, I remember listening to the radio, and I fell in love with the roar of the crowd. And then, I mean, think about where he could go with that. He's like, and I got to say things and hear you roar in response. No, he said, for 67 years, every time I heard you roar, I was an eight-year-old boy again. And you just think about a man who has said, uh, who has been enormously successful in his career. And he could have stood up there and sort of, you know, somewhat casually talked about all the great things that he got to do. And instead, he stands up and he thanks everybody who has allowed him to live his dream for his whole adult life. And that is such a beautiful picture of humility, um, of receiving and knowing that all that we receive, that all that we have in life is a gift. And being able to enjoy it because we don't think we deserve it. And being able to respond to others by saying thank you. That's what it really looks like to be humble. Not to beat yourself up, but to know that everything that we have in life has been given to us by the God who made himself nothing in order to lift us up and reconcile us to himself. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for this incredible passage, this incredible king who um, accomplished so much, who was in so many ways a powerful, smart, creative, charismatic, imposing man. And yet you worked in his life in order to show him that that wasn't all he had hoped. And God, I pray that you would help us to see in Nebuchadnezzar the, the pride and the insanity of thinking that we deserve what we have. That we might humble ourselves in response to you, the Most High that we might see and know that you have given us everything we have, that we would receive it as a gift, because it's not ours in the first place, that we would be able to move out into the world uh, as those who can offer our gifts to, uh, to build up others as well. And God, if there are any of us here today who have yet to bow our knee to you. God, would you work in us now in just a moment of silence to say, God, I am done being the king of my own life. And would you humble me, whatever it takes. I look to Jesus, not to my own record. Thank you. Thank you for the gift of Jesus. 
we pray in his name. Amen.